who is Jesus? Or at least, who do you think Jesus is? It's a question that many have sought to answer each week as we've considered Mark's gospel. But as we think about who Jesus is, some have said Jesus was merely just a, just a good preacher. He, you know, he lived and he died and he did a lot of good things. Some say that Jesus was, was merely just a, a traveling preacher that called people to obey God's law. Uh, Jesus was a prophet, uh, but was one who was pointing to the true prophet that was yet to come. Others have said Jesus was a religious leader. One who showed God's people how to live an ethical life. Others have said Jesus was crazy. That he was a a lunatic. That he died a tragic death because of his zealous and radical teachings. Who is Jesus? That's what we're going to consider in Mark's gospel today. Who is Jesus? We've been traveling through Mark's gospel now for many weeks and We've come to, if you will, the climax of Mark's gospel. The center of the gospel of Mark is in our passage this morning. All of Mark's gospel has been building to this point. Questions about Jesus' identity, things Jesus has done, things people have said, have all been used by Mark to point to that question, who is Jesus? You might remember Uh, many weeks ago when we started in Mark's gospel, that Mark began his gospel by saying that this is the gospel, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so from the very beginning, Mark revealed to us a little about Jesus' identity, that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, that Jesus isn't merely a man, but, but that he's the God-man. That he has been uh, sent here by God to accomplish his purposes. And Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ is the watershed moment in the narrative of Mark's gospel. It, it, is, the, it is the dividing point. And from, from here, the ark goes down, if you will. The, we're, we're on the mountaintop and we're going to slide down the slope of the mountain into the passion narratives of, uh, of the end of Mark's gospel. From, the, from this point forward, we could say that Mark's gospel is, is rather an extended passion narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection. That at every moment, it's going to be hinted at that Jesus came to die for sinners. And he, that he will rise again in three days. Who is this Jesus? And what did he come to do? I invite you to turn this morning to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, page 844 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you're welcome to that Pew Bible. Uh, Take it home, read it, um, and know God through it. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him. John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. A powerful passage. A simple one. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he reveals also the kind of Christ that he will be, a suffering one, one that will die for the sins of people. This morning I've sort of organized our text around three needs. First, the need, the need for confession. The need for confession. Secondly, the need for clarity. And third and finally, the need for correction. First, the need for confession. Recorded in Mark's Gospel is this most famous confession of Peter. You are the Christ. Mark records only a a bit of it. Matthew gives us more. Matthew tells us that Peter confesses that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds, Barjona calls him this grand name. Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus recognized that this confession by Peter wasn't just merely a man-made confession, but rather something that God was revealing to Peter by his Spirit. But Jesus begins this by asking a question. Really two questions. Do you notice them? First, in verse 27, who do people say that I am? Jesus wants to know, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying on the street? What are they murmuring in their clubs as they get together in their homes? What are they whispering about around the dinner table about me? Who do people say that I am? And naturally, Jesus' disciples answer him. Well, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah. And still others are saying you're one of the prophets. Now, all of these are quite natural, not really radical in any way. These are all things that would have been really expected for people to see. So let's think about them. First, John the Baptist. That's not unusual. If you remember back, that's what Herod thought. Uh, If you remember Herod, when he was thinking about Jesus' miraculous power, he said, there's no way he is doing that of himself, that he is rather... He, he, is, he is a reincarnation of John the Baptist. He, John the Baptist has been reincarnated, and, and that's how he's able to do it. He, he's been born again in some sort of metaphysical way. And so uh, that's what Herod believed, and, and perhaps that's what we can tell is that many believe that. That somehow John the Baptist, who was murdered by Herod, had been uh, resurrected in some form or some fashion, and Jesus was doing that. Others said that he was Elijah. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Elijah is like the most popular guy in the Old Testament for first century Israelites. For first century Israelites, they loved Elijah. Why? Well, Elijah did some pretty incredible things. Uh, You can go back and read about them in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. Elijah was an incredible prophet. Great power. He's the one that called fire down from heaven at Mount Carmel. He's the one who called down power, who... The one who prayed and it stopped raining and then prayed again and it rained. 
Elijah exercised great power in many ways. He raised a dead child from the dead. Elijah was probably looked at as one of the greatest prophets. But, but Malachi, uh, in, in about the 5th century, had prophesied that Elijah would be a forerunner to the Messiah. Elijah had said in an obscure way that some form of an Elijah-like person would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And if you remember from the story of Elijah, Elijah never died. Elijah was rather taken up into heaven. And so because of that, many first century Jews believe that, hey... Jesus is Elijah. Jesus is the one that's the forerunner to the prophet. He obviously is manifesting power like Elijah had. He's, he's healing little sick children just like Elijah did. He, he has great power. Perhaps he's Elijah. And then still others, one of the prophets. All of these demonstrate that Jesus was some kind of forerunner to the Messiah. So the popular opinion about Jesus was that he was wonderful. I mean, the word on the street of Jesus was, was quite good. I mean, these are all good things. So don't read these and think, wow, they really didn't like Jesus very much. No, no, no. The people loved him. I mean, he was hitting the popular opinion, if you will, and, and the, the pollsters were doing, you know, he, he was a popular guy. Everyone loved him. He was doing great things. But each and every one of these misses the point of who Jesus is. None of them come close to the answer that Jesus is the Christ. No one even had that in their mind. And so for what Peter is about to do, this is radical and, and quite unusual. Notice no one believed that Jesus was the Christ. No one believed that he was the anointed one of God. So look, secondly, at the, the question he asked. Question two. But who do you say that I am? So, so the word on the street about me is this. But, but Jesus turns in, in a very emphatic and pointed way. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? The emphasis here is on the disciples. All right, disciples, you've been with me. You've heard me. I've taught you privately. You saw, saw all of my miracles. Who do you think that I am? Who do you think that I am? And, and Peter responds with this grand confession. You're the Christ. You are the Christ. I think it's easy just to pass over that. You think, well, of course, he's the Christ. Right? We know that. This is not this is radical. This isn't surprising to us. Oh, but brother and sister, may you just meditate on that, what Peter is saying here? You are the Christ. You're the Christ. Now, the Christ, Christ, is, is basically the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So if you're familiar with your Old Testament, there are passages where the prophets, you know, 500, 1,000 years before Jesus, prophesied, foretold, uh, a Messiah would come. And, and Messiah literally means anointed one of God. There was going to be one who was going to be anointed by God to do a particular thing, to, to, do, to, to have a particular task sent by God. And so Moses, right? you know Moses, right? All the way back at the Exodus, 
When, 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 when Moses is leading God's people, he prophesies and says, there will come one after me that is like me, a brother who will be a prophet, who will lead God's people into righteousness. So, so he's saying, just like I'm leading you into the promised land, well, there's, there's going to come another one. Well, and then that other one pointed to David. And David was the anointed one of God. David was the, the, the righteous king, if you will, the one after God's own heart. And so when we think about the kings of Israel, we see like this, this, this climax at David. And then from there we know this, this terrible, downward, sinful spiral, starting with the son Solomon as the kingdom spiraled out of control because of sin. And the people longed for that righteous branch of David to come. That one that, that God promised David would arise from his own lineage. This, this king who would come and, and reign victorious. And so first century Israelites were looking for a warrior king. They wanted someone who would conquer the, the Romans and finally give them the promised land back. Would finally usher in the, the new kingdom that we believe has come in Christ. That's what they longed for. And so the, the Old Testament prophets prophesied of the one coming. They, they told of the king who would come and deliver God's people. That is, that God's people would be regathered together again under his rule and in his place. So God's people in, in God's place under his rule. And we really see this in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in under God's rule in God's place as his people. But when they rebelled against him, they destroyed that plan that he had for God's people in God's place under his rule. And when we see God calling Abraham, that's what he's doing. He's, he's reinstituting what was destroyed in the garden. He's bringing back together God's people in God's place under his rule. But as I've already mentioned, the nation of Israel rebelled against God and destroyed that purpose that God had. But God's plan was always to call a people unto himself, to, to, to call out of humanity a people by which he's going to gather together under his rule, in his place, and they will be his people. And that's what he does through Christ. That's what it means for Peter to confess that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the, the anointed one, the, the long-awaited king, the, the one who will lead God's people into a new place under God's rule. This is what Peter is confessing to be the Christ. So when we confess that Jesus is the Christ, that's what we're saying. That Jesus is the one who will unite God's people and lead us into new life with him. He'll rescue us from sin. I want you to consider, though, the circumstances by which Peter made this confession. No one believed this. No, no one was saying that Jesus was the Christ. Consider, first, the, the fact that Jesus' own family rejected him. I mean, if, all, if anyone you would expect to believe Jesus would be his own family. But in John 7, we're told that his brothers thought he was nuts. No, it was crazy. Jesus, you're, you're just, you're crazy. We've even considered in Mark's gospel how his mom and his brothers, you know, try to bring him inside to get him away from the crowds. They thought the crowds were just going to destroy him because of his crazy teachings. Jesus, you're a lunatic. What are you doing? Get inside. You're going to die. 
So his own family rejected him. More than that, the religious leaders of the time rejected him. The experts on the law rejected him. The ones who knew the Old Testament better than anyone else did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. They looked at Jesus and they said, no, he can't be. He can't be. He hasn't done this or done that. This is out of timing and Elijah hasn't come, so he can't be. This can't be because the Christ is one who's going to reign victorious. The one who's going to be a king who's going to destroy the Roman Empire. They didn't see it in Jesus. To amidst these political and social and religious pressures, Peter makes this wondrous confession. It kind of leads us to think about what kind of pressures do we face when we confess Christ? What kind of pressure do we face when we're willing to make a confession like Peter makes? We're willing to say that, that, that Jesus is the Christ. And friends, I want you to know that that question that, that Jesus asked, well, it comes to us down through the corridors of time and comes to us today. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? How do you define Jesus and, and who do you say that he is? Jesus tells us in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is the Christ. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that he is the, the one anointed by God to save his people? Or do you look for another? Do you, do you look maybe even to yourself for salvation? Notice in this passage though something strange. Jesus again in verse 30 silences his disciples. Peter makes an incredible statement here. He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus immediately says, don't tell anybody. What? I thought, I heard, I thought we're supposed to tell everybody about Jesus. Is this, is this passage about us? What's the need for secrecy here? Why does Jesus want to keep them silent? Because Jesus wants to define who he is. Jesus will define what he has come to do. So the need for secrecy comes because of these popular misunderstandings of who he was. Some thought he was John the Baptist. Others thought he was Elijah. Still one of the prophets. They were confused about who Jesus was. And so thus the need for clarity. The need for clarity. And notice Jesus gives that clarity in verses 31 through 32. He says... Mark tells us, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He said this plainly. Jesus begins to teach them. And he teaches them plainly or clearly. He gives clarity to their understanding of who the Christ is. Now, this is not to diminish Peter's confession. We believe Peter made a true confession. But Jesus wanted to fill that bucket in Peter's mind with the true identity of what the Christ was. He wanted to make clear to his disciples what he came to do. Lest they be confused and stirred up in some sort of uh, military uh, or political type notions that Jesus might be giving them. Jesus didn't come to free them from Roman occupation. 
Jesus didn't come to usher in a temporal kingdom. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of all kingdoms. As He is the King of all kings. So to be clear, Jesus is a king. And He does have a kingdom. And His kingdom has come in His coming. But yet, it is not yet to be fully realized. And in His second coming is when His kingdom will be visibly recognized and every kingdom of this world will be in subjection to Him. So Jesus begins to teach them, begins to show them who He is. He changes the question, if you will, for us. So all along we've been saying, who is Jesus? But now the question changes. What did Jesus come to do? What was it that He came to do? Notice with me really four things Jesus says He came to do. First, Jesus says, I must suffer. Secondly, I must be rejected. Thirdly, I must be killed. And fourthly, I must rise again. Did you see them there in Mark's Gospel? Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What Jesus is doing is teaching the kind of uh, Savior He has come to be. He's come to be the suffering Savior. The suffering Messiah. Not, not the one who's going to reign victorious just yet. But will through the resurrection reign vic- victorious. So let's consider what Jesus is teaching here about His ministry and about His life. I think to be helpful, turn over to Isaiah 53. And I wanted to show you a couple ways in which Jesus is pointing to the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 in his own life. Isaiah 53. First, Jesus tells us, as you're turning there, that he must suffer. That he must suffer. Now, as we'll see in a moment, Peter struggles with this, as as is natural. What do you mean, Jesus, you came to suffer? What do you mean you came to die? Jesus says, no, I came to suffer. And in Isaiah 53, Isaiah gives us an idea of kind of maybe what's in the behind the scenes, behind what Jesus is saying here in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that excuse me brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed you notice what isaiah is saying here that through the suffering of christ we are healed our healing and i think first and foremost spiritual healing and then secondly physical healing is brought to you by Jesus' suffering. Jesus' suffering makes possible. But often we kind of think narrowly about Jesus' suffering. But Isaiah thinks about it in a more broader sense. And if you think about Jesus' whole life, you can see that his whole life was a life of suffering. Jesus suffered in his temptation before Satan. Remember, Satan tempted Jesus. He, He suffered tremendously in that. Do you not think that Jesus suffered in his rejection by his family? The fact that his family, his own mother, and his own brothers rejected him? Do you not think that he suffered in that? Do you not think that he suffered in the sense of his relationship with his father? 
that, that, that he left the eternal fellowship of God to come to be a man and to suffer for our sins? You know, think that that puts strain and stress upon the Trinity? You know, think that he suffered on the cross for the punishment of our sin? But all of this, Isaiah says, brings about our healing. It brings about our peace. Our peace with who? Our peace with God. The Bible tells us that our sin has basically destroyed our relationship with God. That we are at war with God. That we have rebelled against God. That we have willingly, not passively, not because of our parents or our grandparents, but willingly, as a human, rebelled against God. And not just us, but all humans have rebelled. Every one of us, since Adam and Eve, have been rebels. And we have been at war with God. We've not been at peace with Him. We're not born at peace with God. We are born at war with God. And God has judged us, clearly telling us that because of our rebellion, that we deserve death. The wages of sin is death, not life. And so all humanity is condemned to die. But Jesus came to give life. And so He came to suffer for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. But Jesus says, I came not only to suffer, but He says, I also came to be rejected. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. Back up just one verse. It's a little out of order, but hopefully you can see this. He was despised and rejected by men. Yet we esteemed, excuse me, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Friend, I want to do something for you right now to help you. People were not attracted to Jesus because he was a good-looking man. So despite what Hollywood has led you to believe, Jesus wasn't a buff dude that everyone was just falling all over because he was attractive. Jesus was ugly. Jesus was ugly in the most ugliest ways, Isaiah said. No one was attracted to Jesus because he was a good-looking guy. No one was attracted to Jesus because he was just, wow, he's just wonderful, and man, I need to be around him. No, this guy, Jesus was despised. He was one from whom men hid their faces. I think this especially refers to Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus so marred by his death that people looked away in disgust at who he was. Jesus was not attractive. Paul tells us that the world never looks in attraction to the things of God but rather it's a fragrance of death unto death and life unto life. It's a fragrance of life to those who are being saved, but to those who are perishing. Jesus smells like a rotting corpse, Paul says. Jesus was rejected, we are told. Rejected by who? Specifically, he says, I must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. The Sanhedrin, the one who will try Jesus, is most clearly who he's rejected by. But it's who these people represent that's most important to us. Jesus re was rejected by his own people. We must see this. We must see that Jesus was rejected by us. Do not come here and think that we have bo was born just accepting Jesus. 
we were born rejecting him and rejecting God. Just as Adam rejected God's authority and kingship in the garden, so we reject Jesus as well. Jesus says, I came to be killed. He tells us that he must be killed. Probably the most radical, perhaps, of all the three that he says, he says that he's going to be killed. He tells his disciples that there's coming a day shortly where I will die. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 and verse 8, look there with me, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. An innocent man died that the, that the guilty might go free. That's what Isaiah is saying. That an innocent man, one whom there was no deceit, there was no guilt, there was nothing Jesus did to deserve to die. But he died for the innocent. Excuse me, he died, excuse me, for the guilty. The innocent for the guilty. Jesus died. He was cut off from the land of the living. That those that had been cut off could live again. He was killed that we might have life. He died for our sins. Fourthly, he says that in three days, that after three days, he will rise again. And friend, we see this right in Isaiah. In Isaiah 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Now listen. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, how can a dead man make intercession for anyone? How can God divide the portion with a dead man? No, here in Isaiah, there's the anticipation that Jesus won't stay dead. That Jesus will rise victorious and that he will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords all over all people. And that God appoints him, he, he proportions to him the whole universe. And He gives them all things. But I want you to see something that Jesus says very clearly as we think about these four things He says. He says they must happen. Notice what He says back in verse 31. He says, the Son of Man must. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And He must rise again. If you have an older translation, it might say, it is necessary that I suffer. It is necessary that I be rejected. It is necessary that I be killed. It is necessary that I rise again. What we see here in that must is a very clear statement in the exclusivity of Christ and the necessity for our own souls. Because the atonement of man's sin, there is no atonement without the shedding of blood. The author of Hebrews tells us that unless someone dies that for us, that there's no chance for us to have life. 
There is a necessity in the suffering of Christ in that Jesus must suffer. If he doesn't, no one else will or can. He is our only hope. There's no one else but him. We also see that Jesus' suffering wasn't some divine tragedy. It wasn't some terrible accident. Jesus didn't die because he was a fool and said the wrong thing. Jesus purposed to die. Jesus suffered willingly obeying his father. Willingly submitting to his father's plan to die for sin. Jesus reveals that he is the promised savior. The true prophet that Moses the one who would be greater than Moses. The one who would be the greater king. David's greater brother. The long-awaited and long-predicted Messiah. Jesus has come to atone for sin. As sin separates, Jesus reunites. Jesus brings atonement for our sins. This is what Jesus is speaking about here. Is his substitutionary atonement. How he will die in the place of sinners. How he will suffer for sinners. But how he will raise again for sinners as well. This is what he came to do. We have nothing without these musts. Without the must and the necessities of Christ, there is nothing. There is no satisfaction of God's wrath without his sacrifice. The author of Hebrews tells us, but when Christ had offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Why did Jesus sit down? Because he was finished. There's nothing else to do. I've done it. I completed it. God's wrath was satisfied in his death. Waiting, he says, from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that Christ would be victorious. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We see in this passage that God's wrath is satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. And without his sacrifice there is no satisfaction for for God's wrath. Without, excuse me, there is no removal of sin without his vicarious suffering. There's no removal of sin, no washing of the blood, no singing together here. What can wash away our sins? We don't sing that if Jesus doesn't bleed and die. We take that out of our hymnals. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered for once, the righteous for the unrighteous, the great exchange. You should have died on the cross. But Jesus died in your place. For you. For all those who would call upon his name. There is no life without his death and resurrection. Paul tells us for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Without his death, we don't have life. We have no hope for eternity if Christ does not die. Friends, we have no hope of life if he does not get up out of the grave. For Paul tells us, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus opened a new way. 
a way to life everlasting with God. There is nothing without the atoning efficacy of Christ our Savior. If Christ does not do these things, we are hopeless and helpless without Jesus. And so thirdly and finally, we see a need for correction. Jesus gives us a clear correction. Peter, not understanding what Jesus is saying, and most naturally rebelling against it, he is confused. I mean, this is natural. So don't, don't throw stones at Peter this morning and thinking that this is her- Peter. What are you doing, you, you satanic man? No, 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 no. Peter, this is his buddy. This is his friend. This is his leader. This is his, his savior. This is his Christ. What do you mean you're going to suffer and die? What do you mean? What do you mean by this, Jesus? Let me help you understand Jesus a little more. And so we see Peter take Jesus aside and rebuke him. What sinking sand he may be on here today. He stands and rebukes the Savior of the world. The eternal Son of God. He rebukes him and tells him, Jesus, you're wrong. You, you've misunderstood. That's, that's not what you've came to do. And Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. Now he turns and looks at his disciples. If you notice there in verse 33, he says, but turning and seeing his disciples. I think Mark is trying to hint a little bit that this isn't just Peter who thought this, but rather Peter as kind of their representative, their spokesman, as he has become, kind of is speaking for the group on this. And so Peter turns, excuse me, Jesus turns to the group and says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Now, now did Jesus think that Jesus or excuse me, that Peter was Satan? No. What he's saying is your words are satanic. Your words are satanic. Now, now why? Why? I mean, Jesus, I mean, this seems so innocent. Peter was just trying to, you know, oh, friend, it's okay. You know, it's not going to be that bad. He, he was just consoling Jesus a bit. What's the deal? But friend, if there is no suffering, then there is no salvation. This is a word spoken by Satan to try to get Jesus off of his plan. To tempt Jesus to abandon the Father's purposes. Jesus was a man. Jesus was the man who wept in the garden of Gethsemane. Who who bled sweat from his brow. As he thought about the anguish that he was about to suffer on the cross. Jesus was a man who was tempted in every way we are, yet he did not sin. He did not turn from the Father's plan. He he looked resolutely to the cross and he went. And so what we see here is a temptation thrust upon Satan. But if Satan can't get saved, no one's getting saved. That's, That's Satan's position. He's like a little baby. If I can't have it, no one can have it. If I, if I can't get in on this salvation, no one's getting in on it. And so Jesus is the one whom he has to stop because he knows that Jesus is the, the one who has come to crush him. Jesus is the long-awaited one from Genesis 3.15. That snake crusher that God promised would come and crush the head of Satan. 
Satan knows whom he will be destroyed by, and he wants to stop him. And what we see here is man-centered thinking versus God-centered thinking. Man always tries to figure God out. Man always tries to figure out God's plans. We always sit down and we think about, well, what's God doing in my life? And how is He doing this? And, and what's He up to? All these things. Rather than letting God be God and sovereignly rule our lives and run our lives, we try to play God and figure things out. And that's what Peter is doing here. Jesus rebukes him. Peter, you are setting your things on the, on, on the things of man and not on the things of God. Brothers and sisters, we may have gathered today doing the same thing. When we gather together and we, we live as God's people, we do not want to set our, thing, our minds on the things of man and think up and dream up of man-made solutions to God-sized problems in our lives. We don't want to sit and ponder, you know, how can I get through this trial in my life? How can I get through this sin? How can I overcome it myself? through my own strength, rather than trusting in what God has provided in Jesus Christ, a perfect sacrifice for our sins. In 1988, Walter Wink wrote an article detailing the the, the really tremendous phenomenon of human reaction due to cultural conditioning. And uh, there is this test that was done, uh, and he reports about it, Basically, what happened, he says, when a picture, I want you to think about this in relation as we think about Jesus and, and perhaps what we, who we think Jesus is. He reports, when a picture of a baseball player was flashed on one eye and a bullfighter to another, Mexicans reported seeing the bullfighter and North Americans reported seeing the baseball player. They were conditioned by their cultural Surroundings to see those things, although they saw both of them. Subjects shown an unusually red six of spades, right? It's not really red, uh, will experience, he says, a vague physical discomfort, but identified as a six of spades. So they're used to seeing a black and they see red, and there's, I don't know, and then they say, no, 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 no. we're conditioned to see what we see because of the world around us. And that's what Peter is doing here. Peter was conditioned to think about Jesus only in a certain way. And Jesus was trying to infill his mind. And friends, we do that ourselves. I want to warn us with a couple things this morning. First, we confess Christ, but then turn to universalism and say all are saved. There's really no need. All roads lead to heaven. You just have to be a good person. Confess Christ, but then turn to some form of nihilism. You know, nothing matters. It's all good. We're just, you know, kind of floating through life. And uh, there's really no really matter for all of these things. We just kind of go through the motions of life. Maybe more to the point, confessing Christ, but then turning to legalism. Self-righteousness. We confess Jesus is our way. Jesus is our Christ. But then we go around living in, in legalistic ways and standing before God in self-righteousness. Look at me, God. Look at all that I've done. Look at, look at how good I am. Look at how much I've grown in Christ. Look at how much I've read my Bible this week. Look at how much I've prayed this week. Oh, friend, do not take this lightly because we do this in so many ways. 
And you know what we do most tragically? Is we make others into self-righteous people. We say, if you don't dress a certain way, if you don't say a certain thing, if you, if you don't read perhaps a certain Bible, well then, you're not really confessing Jesus. Perhaps we confess Christ and then turn to licentiousness. That is, we just live however we want to live. We never really obey Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you're my Savior, you're my Christ, but, you know, I'm not really willing to kind of turn my life over to you just yet. Um, i got some things to do. I'm going to kind of continue to do things my way. Now, we probably don't say it so blatantly. We do it through our disobedience, through not obeying God and His Word. Christ didn't save us so that we could live however we wanted to live. The point of confessing Christ, as we'll see in a couple weeks, is living in submission to Him and obeying Him. Or lastly, perhaps this is you today, confessing Christ but then doubting your own salvation? Doubting that Christ could save someone so sinful as you? Confessing Christ but thinking, you know, you don't understand what I've done. You, you don't understand what I did this week. You, you don't understand what I did last night. I'm a sinner. So you doubt that Jesus could save. Oh, friend, I want you to know Jesus can save. And he will freely save you today. If you will confess his name, repent of your sins, and trust in him, you too can be saved. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, you are gracious because we have seen that we are unworthy. That we are rebels of the worst kind. There is no goodness to be found in us. We have all gone astray. Not one of us has righteousness to stand before you. Every one of us is guilty and deserving of your just and perfect judgment. Father, we have tasted of the sweetness of Christ today. That the Christ has come. May we marvel that you came to save sinners. That the eternal God of the universe entered human history to save his people. You did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us cast out, but was cast out yourself for our salvation. The righteous for the unrighteous. The sinless for the sinner. The great exchange has happened and we look to the cross for salvation. We look to Christ for our atonement. And you have provided all that we need in Christ we worship you today. And Father, we pray that our hearts would be gripped by Christ today. By the glory of all that you are for us in Christ. That our lives would be transformed and lived in submission to Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we need your help desperately to live in faithfulness to your word. Obediently following Christ in our lives. 
so we pray that you would aid us this week and unite us again together next week as we again will sing of your praises and of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's conclude our time together singing.